when I was a freshman in high school, wrestling on the varsity team, hit my first match. My family's there. My brother, who does not think much of me, and he wrestles on a team across town because he thinks that little of me. <laughs> so we go on a different team, and they're watching all my cousins. Say, I have to go watch this kid wrestle. And I go out there, and in front of the whole family, I go out there with my big debut. I'm a freshman in high school, and I get pinned in 14 seconds. So my father comes afterwards. I thought, I don't know, a lot of people don't know the old Lifesaver commercial where the guy gives the kid a Lifesaver and goes, I still love you, son. You're a loser, but I love you. <laughs> and my father goes, hey, your brother Marty says you're embarrassing the family and maybe you should give this sport up. And I was like, what? And then four years later, you know, I go on and I win something 70 some matches in a row and I win the state championship, think I'm a stud. And then two months later, I got my arm chopped off. Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. All right, welcome to Chris Waddell Living It today. I am super excited to have Willie Stewart joining me. We have a long history. I asked Willie how he wanted me to introduce him because he has done some absolutely spectacular stuff. We are going to talk about it. He said, introduce me as someone who tries to conquer fear every day. I, you know, Willie, I don't know if that's just the start or, or if that's the end. Like, I mean, that seems like the best part. Willie, thank you for joining us. This is absolutely awesome to have you on. Yeah, well, it's awesome to be on. It's great seeing you, you know, even virtually, Chris, I love you. So thanks a lot. It is entirely mutual, Willie. Now, can, can we can we start with the legend? <laughs> can we can we start with the legend? Because we've got to go back. I mean, this is back to to college, right? So yeah. did this really happen? Did you really have a construction accident and really run to the hospital? Yeah, I thought you were going to go back to the legend of Sasquatch. That when, when I was a two-armed man, hairy man running through the woods. I was just saving that for later. Yeah. Now I'm a bald-headed one-armed man talking to you. <laughs> Yeah, you know what? I, that is true. That is true. I know. Uh, you know, I kind of have to tell that because, you know, there's these turning points in your life. And that was a, that was a huge turning point. Mostly it turned me right into the gutter for, for quite a couple of few years. But I was on the Watergate building in Washington, D.C., uh, working a summertime job. And I was a, a wrestler mostly. You know, I was not a student because I wasn't that smart and still am not. And I wasn't, but one thing I could do quite well was wrestle. So I was known mostly as a wrestler, football player, rugby player, all the way through high school. And uh, I was working a summertime job. My brother, my older brother, Steve, which there's six boys in my family. My brother, Steve and I were working together on the Watergate building. And uh, I was underneath the cooling tower, which is the gigantic fan system that cools the gigantic complex. And I asked for a rope to come in, the rope, went around my arm, which you can see that's gone. And right there's a rope burn. You know, a lot of people don't know that that scar is basically where the rope went around, went down to the elbow, squeezed everything clean, pulled my hand off. So what was sitting there was the, when I, I cause then I went up in the air, smashed my hips really bad, went up in the air. And uh, when I fell on the ground, I didn't know I lost my arm until I saw my arm in front of me. And then, I, and then I looked to my left and I was on my hand and knees and I was falling on my face. So I cut my face because I thought my hand was there. 
And the interesting thing was, is that the rope got so tight, it pulled everything off and it cleaned it down to the bone. So the bone was sticking out to where your hand would be attached. But my, I was bleeding quite badly and the blood was circling around, hitting everything. And I was covered with red. And I remember just blood flying. And, it, and then my bicep was going down the white bone and I pushed the bicep up into where, you know, pushed it up to hold the blood in. And the bicep circled up, stopped the bleeding, I felt. Allowed me to th pick up my hand, throw it out of the hole, give it to a guy named Brad, poor Brad. And then I ran, I ran to the edge of the building because I was feeling good enough to get up. And I ran to the edge of the building. I jumped in a crane pan, circled with my hands, which means bring the crane down 15 floors down to New Hampshire Avenue, Washington, DC. And I, my brother picked me up, but he couldn't get through traffic and he was killing me. Got out of the truck and ran up the middle of the, the road, bouncing off of cars, all the way into George Washington. Middle of the road. So like cars are moving on each side kind of thing or, or they're rush not hour. Well, you know how rush hour traffic is in the east. So I'm going up the middle of the lane, bouncing on the cars because I and I could see I always I visualize the people's faces, you know, and it was crazy. And I saw my reflection and my I had pretty hair like you at that time and uh, a long time ago. <laughs> and I and I get up to the door of the hospital and my father was actually there. You know, he has eight kids and he sees one of his, his younger kids missing his arm and he caught me and he dragged me into the hospital. And uh, went in there and three days or a day later or something, I woke up with the sound that you hear beep, 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 see the drip, all that, fearful that I was thought I was in a dream, looked to my left, arm was gone, life forever changed. Um, and in my mind, in most people's mind, disability is negative. And in my mind at that time, it took a long time to change that. That's why I talk about fear, because I think I had a lot of fear at that time, didn't know what to be, do. And from that time on, uh, I think that conquering fear every day has been, you know, sort of a mantra. And because I because I was very scared and didn't know what to be. And I was 18 years old and lost. So completely. Now, in your high school, would you have <laughs> would you have been voted? most likely to run to the hospital if you'd lost your arm in a construction accident? You know, probably. I, I would think so. I mean, just because that was my MO was not that I was, you know, I, I, I worked really hard. I don't think I was that great of an athlete, although I was excelled in sports. I worked hard. You know, I got that from a couple of my brothers that worked really hard, were more they went farther than the ones that were just naturally gifted. And I sensed that. And I felt that hard work, and this is what I tried to say to my kids, that hard work does pay off, but you can't do hard work if you don't get in the game. So, and, you know, hard work doesn't happen in the basement, you know, and that was my fear. You were, you were a wrestler. At what rate, at what weight did you wrestle? I, I played football at 190 and I wrestled at 145. <laughs> That tells you that I have mental issues. <laughs> so you lost 45 pounds in a week kind of thing? No, it would take, it would take me a couple months. And then uh, the interesting thing is when I think I left the hospital, I weighed like in the lower, below 140. Really? That, yeah, that just tells you how fast you can lose muscle mass and all that kind of stuff. Because I was like- You lose 80. muscle mass like that, don't you? I yeah. mean, it's, it's amazing. 
And it's hard when you're a wrestler because you're building up muscle, yet you're trying to lose weight. And it's a really tricky thing. But laying in the hospital flat on your back, you just turn into a stick. You know? It happens so quickly. I remember, you know, I went in. <clears throat> it was ski season for me. I broke my back. I'm in the hospital bed. You know, it seemed like the first time they took the covers down, I looked at my legs and went, they're skinnier than my arms. Like, how did that happen? Like wow. that. Yeah, it, those are, these are, these are stories that like a lot of people never hear because, you know, we don't really talk about laying in a hospital, looking at the ceiling for, you know, 30 days at a time. Cause I had lots of infections and bone things going on and then multiple surgeries that we all have to go through. And most of the people, I mean, I was with a, a, a veteran the other day, he went through, I think he said 82 surgeries, 82. He's in the hospital for over six months. I mean, that's tough stuff. I mean, that you when you talk to someone that's been through 82 surgeries, they're and they're in front of you and you're talking to them, you know, I give them praise, you know, because it's like, man, you're a tough dude, tough girl, tough guy, whatever you are. Coming back from the surgery, well, needing the surgery, coming back from the surgery, the anesthesia, the whole deal, everything. Exactly. Oh, it's brutal. So, but Tough is part of who you were. Is that part of what appealed to you in being a wrestler? Why? Because wrestling, there's nowhere to hide in wrestling. <laughs> no. And it, yeah, and, and I remember the reason I said that it was really important that my father met me at the hospital door because I, uh, when he first came to one of my first matches with all my brothers in the stands, and I've told this story before, it's sad but funny. And uh, they're all up there and I have a ton of cousins and my mom's from a huge family cousins are always showing up coming to the matches and my cousins were all really good wrestlers and I was okay but I was a freshman in high school wrestling on the varsity team hit my first match my family's there my brother who does not think much of me and he wrestles on a team across town because he thinks that little of me <laughs> so we got a different team and they're watching all my cousins that I have to watch this kid wrestle and I go out there and in front of the whole family I go out there with my big debut I'm a freshman in high school and I get pinned in 14 seconds. So my father comes afterwards. I thought, I don't know, a lot of people don't know the old Lifesaver commercial where the guy gives the kid a Lifesaver and goes, I still love you, son. You're a loser, but I love you. <laughs> and my father goes, hey, your brother Marty says you're embarrassing the family and maybe you should give this sport up. And I was like, what? And then four years later, you know, I go on and I win something 70 some matches in a row. And I win the state championship, think I'm a stud. And then two months later, I got my arm chopped off. But I didn't talk to my dad for almost four years. I stayed away from him because uh, I, didn't, I didn't like that vibe, which I didn't know it at the time, but I didn't like that negative someone putting me down. And I think that was one of the things that drove me was that proved that I'm as good as anyone else. You know, I'm as good as anyone else and I can do this sport. If you just give me a chance and believe me, believe in me. And he didn't, so why would I surround myself with people that tell me to quit? And then four years later, running to the hospital door, he catches me and carries me through the hospital door. And, he, and I asked my brother, Steve, recently, how did you get there? And Steve's like, I don't know. He just was there. So, so you hadn't spoken to your father from freshman year through losing your arm? Really? I mean, you had to speak to him to a certain yeah, extent. Yeah, we talked, we talk, but there was never a connection. I, you know, it was it, my childhood connection ended on that day. And then my connection re reappeared four years later, uh, you know, my 18th year, you know, you're 14, 18, 
And I just felt like that anyone says that to someone, it's, it, it really was hurtful to me and cut to the bone that my own father didn't believe in me. And I don't think he meant it like that. He just probably felt like I was embarrassing myself and I'd probably, you know, never mount up in this sport. Maybe it's not the sport for you. And I felt, I felt I just made a mistake. I tripped, you know, I tripped and got pinned. That happens. We, it's like crashing out a gate when you're skiing. Is someone going to come up to you? You should never ski again, Chris. <laughs> then you would never ski again. I like, Dude, do you understand in this sport, we all end up on our back and we all end up humiliated? That's the beauty of this sport. It's humbling. And to learn to be humble was really a, a great lesson for me. It was good for me to learn how to lose. Did you, know? you reconnect with your father after losing your leg? I mean, reconnect sort of in an emotional, personal kind of way? Yeah, and I think, you know, this is a this is a side story that you never tell either. But I, uh, I was struggling, but I didn't know it. My mom and dad wanted me to go to counseling. So I'm still, you know, years old I graduate high school I think I'm going to go wrestle you know continue my wrestling career and uh and uh they said you need counseling you need help and you know and at, at that era if you said that to an 18 year old they would feel even weaker you know because mental health really wasn't even an issue no one was even talking about like hey people struggle because of PTSD and all kinds of other things not including how you were raised and I'm a big Irish Catholic family, so that in itself is a that itself is a problem. <laughs> so I went to counseling with my parents. Yeah, you know, and this is 1980. Yeah, 1980. I went into a counselor's office with my mom and dad. Oh boy, was that fireworks! I mean, I think in and that's how I reconnected because I, you know, my mom to this day struggles from those meetings, but uh, you know, I admired what that counselor brought out of her. She had a tough life. And then my dad, you know, having eight kids and he was in the Navy at the time, he's what, 24 years old. And that's a, that's, that's a lot of pressure over a 10 year period to have eight kids and keep a marriage together. And they, they stayed, he passed away, she's still around. And, you know, they, they did the best they could. You know, there's no handbook for the parents back then. And they did the best they could, but you start learning about your parents, which is, really uh could be hard for them but it was good for me you know good for me to realize that they struggle too because so. because in a lot of ways you don't give your parents that you, you don't allow them to be human right they're, they're your parents they're the people in charge they're the people who are supposed to know what's going on they aren't allowed to have fear right yeah. it's like and then your dad tells you to quit <laughs> i'm like what come on dude the only thing I got is like, I can get up off the deck. I'll get pinned again. And I did, I got, you know, I got humiliated over my career, but I, I knew how to win too. And by the end of it, I was pretty confident when I walked on the mat, I was going to win. You know, that's how I felt. So, so what was, what was the issue for you? I mean, where, why did they say that you needed to go to counseling? Was this, were these anger issues? Were they, yeah, I well, you think about this, Chris. You're a certain age, and you know most of your kids, most of your buddies are really high performance athletes. And then you, uh, they all go off their college scholarships and all playing sports, and they all go into their careers and they go off into the next phase of their life. My, who's left? Who's left in town? You know, it's like that movie Breaking Away with the Cutters, the locals, and the 
and that old movie, but it's just still a great movie for kids to see. But who's left when, when everyone goes to college? Who's still around? And that's what, those became my best friends. And I'm not saying this negative towards them, but the opportunities weren't there for them. And a lot of the, lot of the, a lot of the worst of our selves came out in me. And you know, I never went out to bars. I never went drinking. I never got in. I mean, I was a feisty kid, but, and, and I didn't have sports to keep me out of trouble. So what do you think was going on? <laughs> you know, I look forward every day to having my, my uh, Lucky Charms for breakfast and my Budweiser's for dinner. You know, that's basically as an 18 year old, that's what I had to look forward to. And I thought that was life because I went up to Boston. You know, I went to rehab up in Boston mm -hmm. uh, at Mass General on an outpatient rehab. And I was with a bunch of uh, construction workers at the time and mostly adults. And that was, I was 18 and that's what I did at it's, you know, at six o'clock at night, you went down, you got an $8 stipend for dinner. We all walked across the street to the package store. We got a rack of, they called it a rack of Budweiser jackhammers. And then we did that till, you know, 11, 12 at night. And, and that was what we did. And, you know, that's what I learned to do. There was no sports in my life. So this was, this was after, after your accident that, that you went and saw a counselor, that you had therapy. This wasn't before your accident. Because when you were no, first no. talking, I thought you were saying before your accident, and I didn't know. Oh, no, no. It was after my accident. After my accident, I was in trouble a lot. I was drinking a lot of beers, and I had no sport outlet. And then, thankfully, uh, sports did come back into my life. Exactly. I want to talk about that, but I want to talk about wrestling just a little bit. What did you do well? in wrestling yeah um i was i when i first started i was actually very good at defense and scoring a small amount of points and winning winning a match you know through that quick takedown quick reversal good defense by the end of it i would i always was on my feet everything i did was on my feet i'd let people go i take them down let them go take them down let them go so i get i get an extra point every time i did that and then most of the time on a takedown, you can actually, that's the moment where you can force someone to their back too. So that aggressive move, letting someone go fast and then hitting them back down, attacking and getting, getting piling points up fast. But in the beginning, I was, uh, I was more defensive, calculated, working it, not making mistakes. And I think I changed towards the end of my career to you know, moving the person's head around, a lot of hand movement, smacking, Cause you can do a lot you can get away with a lot and i was i was quick i had good speeds fairly decent strength and i had solid solid moves but that was it and i would wrestle i wrestled most of the year at 167 and i would drop down to 145 just to make that weight for the state championships and stuff like that wow. so i was always i was always coming back down weight because I was big for a 145 pound. I was big, but as a 167, I was miniature, but it was good for me. It made me stronger, faster, quicker. You know, it's all good stuff. But I was mostly take people down, let them go, take them down again. What about the mental side of wrestling? I mean, did you, it sounds like you were intent on controlling the match. Is, is that part of what you want to do? Because you're, I mean, it's so personal, isn't it? Like, I mean, it's, when you're wrestling, you're, you're, I mean, you talk about getting pinned, right? You get, you got pinned, 
you got dominated. You got defeated like this. It, it's black and white. Like you, you either won or, you know, and, and it's hard to pick yourself off the mat and go back and talk to your father or talk to your cousins or whatever. What, what was the mental game like? And, and did you get better at that mental game? And what was your objective? Yeah, I think the mental game is, it is this, like wrestling is a between the years sport. And if you, this is just, this is the same, it's it, being almost the same at the start gate of a downhill race, you know, it's like, doo, doo. once the, once that stick moves open and you hear that, and you know that it's a different world. And so you get into that world. And when I'm in that world, I, it's almost a perfectionist world. So you're making movements based on your skill sets. And then those movements, you're confident that the third movement of a wrestling move, it's the third and fourth move that get the point. So your first movements, it's just like chess, you're building, you're moving, 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 because ultimately his counters run out. So boom, 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 point. And so you're, you're just in a zone. And then the worst part of the, the hardest part is the defeat part because you failed you failed and then you can fail and quit or you can fail and face your fear and go back up and do it again and that's the hardest thing i think for a lot of athletes and even today as someone going out to run a 1k or a 5k they fear that they'll look stupid and it's like take it from willie looking stupid is okay i mean but that's when i conquered fear and that's how we started out was that it's okay to fail but it's not okay not to try you know, it's, there's simple little things you would tell your kid that, oh, you failed, get back up, get back on that bike. But as adults, we fail and run away. <laughs> we become chickens. So. Because we don't have anybody telling us that we have to get back up. It's, it's incumbent on us to be the one to say, yes, you need to get going and do it again. Because it is, I mean, you're talking about failure, but it's failure in, in your preparation like everything, because you said it's a chess match, right? And so you plan to do this and this this move elicits this response and then it gets that move and it's on instinct, right? Because you've practiced this over and over and over again. And then when it gets thwarted, when it doesn't work, then there's the implosion, right? The implosion of like, okay, everything I've done is wrong, is yeah. done. Like, how do I... How do I step back? Did you, did you enjoy that part of it? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Dude, I remember like my junior year, I'm in a state meet and, um, and I, I felt better than the, the person. I felt my moves were perfect and he was just gifted. And I mean, I lost, I think I lost four to two or something like that. But I was like, everything I did was in that book plan and it didn't work for that individual. So you you have, you know, there's certain plans, no matter how great you are, you hit that gate and then all of a sudden what happened? Wow, the guy before me must've took up a chunk or something, but whatever that kid did, that kid, he was just, he owned me. He had the style that I couldn't, he was really tall, lanky, and, and he just was so long. Every time I did something right, he just owned me. And I was like, God darn it. And you walk off the mat and it's crowded and people are cheering for him. And they remember they hold your hand down and they raise his. It's just this, it's right out of you know Julius Caesar. <laughs> it's like off with the head. 
anyhow, you walk back to the mat, your teammates are like, so what, you know, because everybody gets used, but in the fat, the fans and your parents and everyone, and what you said is true as an adult, though, as an adult, and this is an adult with a disability, and this is someone now that's changed their life, they became an adult with a disability, it's more important now, and this is what I look back at, for someone to believe in that person who's newly injured that you still can do it. You just got to get out there and face the fear. And for me, for me, those two years I said that I went to counseling and struggled was uh, nobody believed in me. And nobody was telling me that you could do it. No one said you could do it. So you're and just hiding in a rack of Budweiser. At a rack. Yeah. And uh, with people that had no expectations of me. Because, you know, so what? You lost your arm. There's your excuse. You have an excuse to be a loser. And I was like, because I have one arm, I'm now a loser. And, and I accepted that. Right. And, and boy, that created a different type of toughness to defeat that. How, yeah, because that's the hardest one, right? That's the excuse. That's I've been changed. I've been changed by circumstance. It's not my fault. It just, it happened. And how did that, how did you get out of it? How did, when, when did the, when did the shift happen? Did it happen all at once? Did it happen gradually? No, it was, um, it kind of happened at once. And, but it was, um, my mother made me make a promise and it was, you know, it was like, Hey, there's Jerry wants you to come do a 5k and go exercise. And, and I'm like, no, I, you know, that's, that's for wusses, a 5k run. And uh, she basically said, I want you to make a promise to me. And my mom, when you made a promise, was like sacred. I mean, not kidding. You know, right. And I'm like, she goes, make a promise. And I go, she goes, I want you to be at that starting line tomorrow morning at whatever time and be ready to run a 5K. And I was pissed. And I said, okay. Because she stuck with it. Like she wouldn't back down. And she was not my mom's not friendly she's not nice either <laughs> which is funny because chris she could see it. she's 90 some years old but she could see this hard luck mom facts a fact <laughs> but uh i made that promise and i got on that starting line i think i finished last out of like a thousand people i was reluctant i was pissed that i wasn't any good i ran a little walked a little i got done with it but i was proud of myself and I was, and I liked it. And I liked the group of people and I liked the attitudes and that's what it was. I what do you up. like about the people? Well, actually, hold on. First, your mom, you say, uh, you say she was hard, she was tough, but she also, she had your best interest in at heart in this one. Like you didn't, you didn't go back on a promise with your mom and, and you also like, she made you do something that you wouldn't have done on your own or might not have done for a while on your I own. Wouldn't. I doubt it. I think I, I think I would, that was the turning point. That was the turning point. And, you know, my mom, I remember when we were a kid, we kids, and I remember her talking to brothers and sisters, you know, there's eight siblings and that's not counting all the families that have 10 and eight and nine, you know, there's a bunch. And, um, but I remember you made a promise. Like if you promise, yeah, that was like, that was just a code that cannot be broken. And which is, 
I still feel that way. I, I feel like when I had children, I'm always making that promise, you know, to be the best parent possible. Not that I am, but I, I work hard at it. But she made me make that promise. And, um, and, and you, you know, when you were saying, well, what, what, what was it at the end of that? And it, it's the movement, physical activity is, uh, is therapy, you know, and I, and it took me, that was the moment when I realized what true therapy for me was, was, so I went out and did it again at night. I started doing training at night because I didn't like how I looked. I was embarrassed how I looked because I now, had, I'm a disabled second-class citizen. That's how I felt. Sure. Oh, and why did I feel that way, Chris? Because probably that's how I treated people, you know? Well, you didn't know any better, right? I mean, this is the this is the hard part. Like we're we're in a different time now where there is some visibility for people with disabilities. But when we were growing up, you you didn't see anybody. Like I don't I don't remember seeing much of anyone. I, I skied as a kid and I remember one guy with one leg. This is back in the double chairlift days, right? So Christmas time, 45 minute lift lines to get up on my, the mountain I grew up on was 680 feet of vertical, right? So to get on this chairlift, they get up that 680 and it's what, it's like 45 seconds back down, 45 minutes, 45 seconds, you know, it's like, but I remember seeing a guy in the corral because it was the corral, you went back and forth, right? It was the maze yeah. and, and you saw, and you're like, oh, wow, that guy has one leg. You know, I never saw him ski because he was probably, you know, 15 minutes ahead of me yeah. on the in getting to the top of the mountain, but we didn't see anybody. And that's yeah. something, it, it's something that's really important. I think, you know, you were running at night. You also said that the people you enjoyed, the people you enjoyed what they were about. What did you enjoy about the people who were in the race? I, I uh, a lot of people incur were giving me encouragement. And, and they, I think they were like, they, I think I felt courageous. Yeah, I felt courageous and they made me feel courageous and they made me feel like, maybe I felt like if I can be courageous, I can change the way people think, which is, is kind of how I, you know, it's emotional for me to say that because I never thought about that. But to this day, I live that I have to be courageous and you have to be courageous and all our brothers and sisters, because if we're not courageous, we cannot be seen. And if we're not seen, we can't change the way people think. So even if we fail and come in last in that 5K, I was courageous because I showed courage that day. And I know what courage is and so do you. And courage, that might've been harder than any wrestling match I ever did or any mat I walked out on or any football field I played on or any rugby pitch I was on. I was out there by myself. I came across that finish line last by myself, but I showed courage and I got strength from my personal behavior, my personal behavior and the behaviors of others to say, good job, pat me on the back, way to go. And I sucked, but, but I did it. And I think, I think I was high, you know, I was I got the true high from sports and I got feedback that I needed. Didn't know it at the time, but I, I kept chipping away that I could be better and I could try new things, but it takes, it takes me to fail. Cause you know, I remember riding a bike for the first time with one arm. It was disastrous. 
And then a lot of people don't know that I was a bike messenger in Washington, D.C. was my job that I took right after that. For six years, I rode a bike, you know, and in the city year round, getting a living crap kicked out of me day in and day out. But I felt alive on that bike. You know, that bike, you know, I wasn't going bike racing. I was riding my bike and I, and I knew everybody. I knew every, you know, I, everybody in the city go, hey, Willie, hey, I'm walking any Billy, Willie. And I was like, this is like a calling card. You know, everyone's got to chop their hand off. But it's also, it can be a curse if you don't, if you, if you take it in a negative way. I looked at it as like, hey, it's, it's a new beginning. I was basically born again, you know, whatever, any way you want to define that. But I have an opportunity to be born again. I can be born again in the swirling down or climbing up. And I decided to get out of the toilet and climb the ladder. And that bike and that run really helped me a lot. Was it because you talk about changing, you know, being seen, right? That, that you have to be out there in order to be seen. Who was your most difficult audience? Were you your own most difficult audience? I mean, you were trying to convince other people. How yeah, hard was it to convince yourself? Well, you know, I don't know if I'm allowed to say names, but you know, remember Scott Blackman, mm-hmm. uh, CEO of US, USOC? Right. That, those, are the, those were the guys. Those were the most difficult guys to change. They were almost impossible. You know, Larry Prost, I'm not saying negative things about them, but they were set in their ways. And, and they really, these are guys, these are the highest level of sport in the United States of amateur sport. And, you know, they wanted nothing to do with, with us. That's how I felt. You know, they felt that we were burdens. And so that was, that's in the long end of it. On the short end, I didn't like when I came back to rugby, which I became the captain of the Washington Rugby Club, one of the best teams in the United States at the time. And I came back stronger, faster than I was with two hands. And I was way better with one than I ever was with two. And I didn't like when those guys went across the field. I could see how they looked at me like, oh, crap. They got a disabled guy on their field. They got a little token. I was in Ireland playing in Ireland. I was treated like a rat, a gutter, no good for nothing rat that had no right being on the field, even if I was better than them. But I tell you what I could do is I could shove that ball down their throat and I could blow off that anger on the pitch, on the field. I could blow off that anger by the speed I ran. I could blow off that anger the faster I rode up the hill. And then ultimately climbing some of the bigger mountains and doing these gigantic events from Ironman to whatever, there were ways to express myself in in actually a productive way Although, in a way, too, it was just acceptable. You know, it was an acceptable, uh, acceptable psychological outburst to do Iron Man. But really, it was a, it was a hurt that made me go across to do Iron Man. You know, I was hurting because I felt like my brothers and sisters that don't have my ability or less than I have are treated by less. But it's like, you know this, Chris, but someone who's a quadriplegic, like Jim McLaren, who we created Challenge Athletes Foundation for, who the, these, these three, four people said, hey, this is a good thing. Those guys, Jim getting out of bed in the days, and I remember talking to Jim and, and watching what he would do every day, coming down in the ski office to learn to ski, handsome, strong man. That dude should be exalted because what he did to get to that office was more than most of us do in a month of physical activity. And he had to do it every single day. 
and he did it with his best self for it every day. But he, because he can't play on the field, isn't elevated. Where I was on the field and I got elevated because I'm a one-armed guy that can do Ironman, I, uh, I felt great about that, but I also felt bad that if my other friend here who got a different injury than I did, but he doesn't do Ironman, is he less than willing? I mean, these are just philosophical questions that maybe we can look into, you know, at another time in life, but is he less than me? And he's so tough or she is so tough. A girl missing her arms and legs, it swims miles out in the ocean. Have you ever seen her? She can outswim you, but you haven't seen her, have you? Because you're not out in the ocean with her. But anyone that sees her walk out of the water after swimming a mile in the ocean goes, that's power. But that's part of, I mean, we're, we're looking at it through the disability lens, right? Because this is the world in which we live. But it's part of the human thing too, isn't it? I mean, it's really easy to underestimate someone, to, to not see them for who they are. And, and to put the burden of responsibility on somebody to to demonstrate, right? I mean, this is the this is the this is the the thing that we're the conflict for all of us, isn't it? To to try to figure out how how we can demonstrate our best person. And you talk about it when we started with fear, right? We started with the idea of fear that you you are somebody who who attempts to conquer fear, and that's personal. Otherwise, you know, fear. And the thing is, you might do that one day. I mean, you might go, you do an Ironman and you wake up the next morning and there's still fear. <laughs> it hasn't gone away. These things don't go away. Some of what you took to the rugby pitch, because I, I, I think I remember this and, I, and I, somebody had told me, and I think it was you, that you were also like the dirtiest rugby player in the world. Is that true? I think I, you know, I made the French look good. The French were known as some of the dirtiest, cheapest players in the world. And I'm like, the French haven't played Willie. <laughs> I, I, and that, nothing I'm proud of, but I, I've just made a point of, I knew who the best player on the field was immediately. And that was my, that was my goal was to make that player inferior. You know, and that that's a strategy like a Dennis Rodman used that too, you know, but it's, it's, uh, I, I already, I, I say this because I don't think I was the greatest athlete, but I was a good tactician and I understood how to win and I knew how the game was played. I started playing as a young age, at a young age. And sure, I was not the, I wasn't the nicest guy and I was willing to do anything to win because I felt like whenever I won and I walked over and I picked up the cup from a tournament because I was the captain. When I picked that cup up, it was power for me to show that cup to those other 20 teams that are there. But we won that tournament and I was the captain of that team. And I am as good as, if not better than all of you here. Not a good way to step on someone's head and say, I'm better than you. But I look, here's something new. This was a, kind of when I first met you is uh, you came in the ski room at Breckenridge Outdoor Education Center. and. I got to go out the mountain ski with you. They said, you know, give Chris a hand or whatever. I didn't know you that well. Well, it was actually, it was at a ski team event. So it was my first, the first time I wasn't on the ski team. I got invited yeah. to a ski team camp at Keystone. Exactly. That's it. Yeah. And you came over, you were, you were my ski buddy. Yeah. And, and, and I, I, was, I was not good. 
I wasn't, I mean, I was sort of not supposed to be there really. Uh, but can I, here, let me finish this. This is kind of a neat thing because I, I watched you ski and I knew Jim Martinson and a few of the other really good skiers and I seen it. And you were pretty young at the time. I'm not even sure how old you were, but the, uh, it was important to me that I'm like, I watched how everyone in the line, everyone in the mountain, and you were, you were thinking you weren't that good, but you were really good. I mean, cause you were at a background, you knew how to carve a train. I mean, you, you were, and I'm like, and I was so, I was so uplifted by you and then by all these other athletes, you know, I wasn't on the uh, Alpine team and I was nowhere near good enough to make the Alpine team, but I really was inspired. And, but I wanted the Alpine people to step up as I started working at the BOEC and working with multiple people with different disabilities of all kinds and accepting of all people of all ability to have the opportunity at the outdoors. I, I realized and this is, this is back way back in the way back machine that uh, you were gonna be a great messenger for what I was feeling and thinking. I needed a thousand Chris's out there, but I needed them to represent others. And then and over my time with all the athletes from the Challenge Athletes Foundation and all the ones that make it to the highest levels of sport, they have an obligation and duty in my mind to be more than just a great athlete, but to be a mentor and to be a messenger to bring others along and the more we're seeing, this is what I've noticed, Chris, over 40 some years of doing this stuff, the more my peeps are seeing from little kids to adults coming back from traumatic injuries to the soldiers and veterans coming back with disabilities and missing arms, legs and chairs, the more they're seeing, the more power our society feels and a bond towards one another. The more we isolate any, any group of our society, the more we push them out, the weaker we all become. And our guys, our, our people that we've worked with our whole life are incredible messengers, you know, and they have a credible responsibility. And I take that responsibility as like, please, and I have young kids coming up, you kids get rid of me and take this ball and run with it. And, and I want to run with it until I can't. And I'm running a lot slower now. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know. I think that there are probably a few people who would argue that point that you're running a lot slower you might not have slowed down enough that people can can see you unfortunately for them but the responsibility is is something that keeps coming up in the conversation that you feel that responsibility to to represent yourself to represent a community to represent in some ways and i'm putting words in your mouth here i guess and an ideal you know like like don't 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 look at, at the uh, at the disability. Don't look at the oh well. This is what you've lost, and so so as a result, you're in this box over here, and it's a box I don't have to think about. Your responsibility, in a lot of ways, is is to stretch people's imagination and to make them to make them see something that they didn't think they'd see in you, in the next person that they meet with one arm or the next person they meet in a wheelchair or themselves as well, right? I mean, it has to happen on, this is a human thing, right? I mean, we're, we're like a, you know, we're, 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 we are an organism as, as a group of human beings as well too, right? I mean, it's like your, your responsibility isn't just to this community, is it? Is it to the community as a whole? It's all of us. Yeah, it's all of us. And if you, I lo always look at accessibility, which is a neat thing to talk about because accessibility helps kids. 
Accessibility helps parents with kids and strollers and multiple kids. Accessibilities help people with disabilities to get somewhere that they otherwise wouldn't have if the trail was not wide enough. Or accessibility helps senior citizens. You know, so accessibility helps everybody. So the more accessible our society is, the more we see one another and we're on a playing field that we're like, oh, wow, wait, I can see you. But if there is no accessibility, and I do lots of stuff in the wilderness, you, you, won't, see, you won't see a lot of my peeps. Right. But, but now and then I do something crazy. Like, you know, the, the, our folks that have climbed Mount Everest or Kilimanjaro, right? It's not an everyday thing. You see that. Like sometimes, even here, we have a little mile climb up a hill here. And a lot of times we get a lot of our athletes that are families that want to have the whole family go up the hill. And it doesn't matter what your ability is. We work as a team, a community to get you up to the top of that hill. At the top of that hill, you'll see my brothers and sisters in chairs or using canes and crutches. They'll be at the top of that hill and most people will be drawn to them because they know how hard it was to get up that hill for them. And then they see someone in a chair up that hill and they, they have the same power as someone crossing the finish line in Ironman, in my mind. You know, that power is there. And in the big thing that I watched, Chris, and you were around, but remember, you remember uh, a great uh, skier and uh, he was he, Jack Benedict. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Remember Jack did. And Jack, Jack was a tough guy. He was a Vietnam vet. I think he was a Green Beret, lost both his legs below the knee, came back and served. I think he served out his 20, 20 years in the military. Well, he went back for two more tours in Vietnam after. And combat tours. I mean, right. he, yeah, I mean, I don't think he was out in the in the field. I mean, I think it was more office, but he was but he was in Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah. So he came back and Jack was what helped us integrate into uh, U.S. skiing, U.S. ski team. And, and, you know, and he helped develop the U.S. Uh, Nordic team, too. He really was big and he'd show up and, and with us on Nordic. And then you have Kirk Bauer, you know, another Vietnam vet lost his leg above the knee and. uh 1968, and then he became the director of Disabled Sports USA. But those two guys were totally different. Kurt saw the ability of everyone and that activity made us stronger. Jack needed, Jack wanted the rock stars. You know, Jack, Jack wanted rock stars or no one. And the rock stars are great, but so, so is everyone else. You know, there's acceptable disability and then unacceptable to Jack. And in my mind, in my world, I think your world is like, there's nobody that's not unacceptable to me. You know, there's, there's like, what do you mean? The courageousness of everyone is within us all. The ability to be courageous is within us all. The ability to fight fear is all of us. So, and you know, as well as I do, Chris, the most powerful people in the world probably have the most fear sometimes. They're scared of so many things. And it's like, let's just face fear and let's let's respect those that face it. And then let's respect those that conquer it because conquering fear is tough. And uh, you and I and our brothers and sisters out there sometimes are the most courageous because they they didn't, they weren't expected to, de- to get over that mountaintop, but they did it. And that just blows people's minds. It blows my mind. Well, and, and the mountain is the metaphor for all of us, right? We're all climbing our mountain and it's difficult for, it's difficult every single day. You know, that's, this is what we share as human beings is that we're going to struggle and that the people who are the most successful are the people who generally struggle the best. 
You know, they're the ones who make it to the top of the mountain. And that's what we end up learning when we see somebody. You've talked a bit about the Challenge Athletes Foundation and about Jim McLaren. Can you, can you back up just a little bit and tell us, one, who Jim was? Yeah. And, and, and how that, because, I mean, Jim's got a crazy story. Yeah, and- I think, I, you know, we're lucky because we, we knew him. But, you know, I'm, I'm director of the Breckenridge Outdoor Education Center of the ski, adaptive skiing, and his brother walked into my office and he goes, hey, I got a brother. He was a football player at Yale. He, uh, I think he, he might have even played. He was lacrosse football and he was an actor in General Hospital. He's like Harvard. Or he went graduate Yale. He all these things, handsome guy. And so somewhere in the early 1980s, Jim's riding his motorcycle and uh, gets hit by a car and gets his leg, lost his leg below the knee amputee. He gets this old wooden leg and whatever. And by 1985, I think it's 1985, he's in Ironman, the Ironman World Championship. And he goes 10 hours and 43 minutes. And this is back when no one knew what the heck they were doing. 10.43 back then on one leg would be like a, a nine something nowadays, an hour, an hour faster. He well, didn't have to tell people what Iron Man is in order to put those things so into context. So it's a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike, and a 26 mile run, all in the same day as our friend of ours that Bob Davitt says, I thought it was all in the same week. <laughs> it's all in the same day. And Bob had a boombox, a friend of mine had a boombox on his bike, and he's doing his like, this is really fun. They'd stop at a diner in the original days. Jim was fast. But he didn't have a flex foot, you know, a prosthetic foot that has that rebound and all the ability to run. He didn't have any special training. And he was really fast. And um, I met my wife. My wife was an iron woman around the same time. And uh, I was enthralled by that. And Jim walks in, not doesn't walk into my office. His brother says, my brother has uh, got hurt in an accident. And I see that he's missing a leg, but I thought that came from the accident. And he was uh, in a wheelchair and he was a quadriplegic, but he could stand up with help. And we started, we got to meet one another and he asked me to come down to San Diego and help out with a fundraiser, which ultimately became Challenge Athletes Foundation. But Jim was the second Ironman I ever met. And he, I said, well, I don't know how to swim. And he said, come down to this, this fundraiser in San Diego. And I said, well, I'm not a good swimmer. And he looked at me and he's like, what, what kind of wimp are you? You can't swim <laughs> He looked at me like, who says they can't, who says they can't do anything? It's like, and I'm sitting there and that stung. You know, Jim, this guy calls me a wimp. And so later, six months later, four months later after the ski season, I come down to San Diego. There's Jim at the top of the steps in La Jolla Cove. And we did a fundraiser. This is the uh, second year and Jim's, Jim's there and they bought a van for him. And, uh, Jim changed my life. He introduced me to triathlon and he told me to quit being a wimp and he told me I can do anything I want. And Jim told me that. Jim was probably the second influence after my mother was Jim. And Jim stretched me into this whole thing, Challenge Athletes Foundation, which buys equipment for people with disabilities to compete at the highest level of sports. 125, almost probably 130 million, 135 million now dollars later and thousands and thousands of athletes Oh, great debt to Jim McLaren and his legacy and memory. And he was who they created Challenge Athletes Foundation for. And, and Challenge Athletes Foundation, which for me was really big, 
because I felt people with disabilities, I felt that even myself and every game I ever played in rugby, I felt disrespected unless I played the game and hit harder than someone else. And Challenge Athletes Foundation told me I didn't need to rip people's heads off to be accepted. And uh, I, they got me into triathlon. Then I did half Ironmans. Then I did Ironman qualifiers. Then I got into a lottery, did four times Ironman World Championship. And I never beat Jim. I was close. Never beat Jim. Jim went 143. I think I went 145. And uh, I'm glad to say that Jim Claren was a much better man than myself. And uh, he passed away a few years back. But to this day, his legacy changes and transforms people all over the world. And it's because of Jim McLaren and Challenge Athletes Foundation. And you've been part of CAF. It's, it's a pretty powerful organization. It is. And so CAF helps, I mean, they raise all this money helping to buy equipment for adaptive athletes, uh, helping with training, with travel, to give people an opportunity to give them a, to give them that, that first initial step. I mean, maybe even the second or third initial step to, to get to, to get, to get going, right? Because that's the hardest part, isn't it? The hardest part is, is kind of getting started and there's so many barriers to entry. Yeah, well that then and the barriers to entry is that's where toughness, but that's why I say when I see a, a quad rugby player or someone you know who's playing rugby at a level at in, in wheelchair rugby, that he's out of bed and he's taking those steps. He if I can't get him out of bed or can't get him the equipment to play, even though he's trying to get out of bed, but he doesn't have equipment. And no one's buying that stuff. There's no insurance company buying that stuff. And I'm in it was like yesterday, Lori Stevens, who I was with, she's here in Idaho now, and she coaches, able-bodied coaches. She's in a chair. She's one of the fastest monoskiers in the world. She's highly decorated, four-time Paralympian. She comes into Idaho, goes into a CAF Idaho office, and she's talking about the bike. She rides a one-off, which is a you know a bike. You know how the one-offs are. Oh yeah. But but now the new bikes. You know how much a new uh, gravity bike the downhill mountain bikes made for people in chairs and how good they are. I don't know if you've ridden one and the gravity bikes now, but they cost about 16 grand. And she walks in and then the director of CIF Idaho, her name is Jen Skisick. And she goes, and Lori says, yeah, I ride bikes too in the summer. And, and we asked her, she goes, I bought it used. I got it from this. It's kind of old, but CIF is going to raise the money raises the money to get her that new bike so she can train year round and be that messenger, be out on those gravity hills, be up in Whistler and out in Vail and down in Park City, riding that bike. And the more she rides, the more people go, that's badass, that's transformative, that's power. And I love it. It is, and, and part of it is one, you're doing things, and two, you're talking about this equipment. I mean, we've benefited immensely from equipment, me more so than you. And a lot, though well, you have some pretty darn cool equipment too. I don't want to, I don't want to diminish any of your equipment, but it is. Don't mean anything more by that. Uh, but but it is it is a it's an entree, oftentimes too. I mean, I think that sometimes starting the conversation is a really hard thing to do. And the equipment, like I've had, I've been sitting there putting my mono ski together and some kids like, oh man, that's cool. And it's like, he's not, he, that kid 
you know, boy or girl, whatever is not necessarily going to talk to me in a wheelchair, but looking at the monoski, they're like, oh, that's cool. And it's an entree to start a conversation. You had a really similar, in some ways, transformation to Jim, right? So Jim McLaren, so he was, he was what? He was offensive lineman or something like that at yeah. Yale. So he was, he was a big dude. Huge. And then, yeah, I mean, huge. And then, then he started doing triathlon. So obviously he got smaller and you went from being a rugby player. I mean, Jim, Jim as well. Right. So, so he had the, he had football player, then he got hit by the car on his motorcycle, lost his leg, started doing triathlons. And then he got hit in a triathlon. Right. I mean, that's, that's how he ended up as a quadriplegic hit by another car. In a triathlon, he was doing a triathlon in Orange County, got hit by a car, launched through the air and hit a telephone pole. And I know people that were in that race that ultimately that race brought them to CAF because they knew who Jim McLaren was. And, you know, Jim was not, he wasn't just an everyday triathlete. He was a, already a legend of triathlon. Like he was one of the first people, he may be the first person with a disability to do Ironman. Maybe, I'm not, I'm not, I can't say that for sure. But Jim did it and he did it well. And there was a couple other pioneers back in those days, but nobody was noticing them. And now because of CAF and the way CAF did, CAF gave us a really good platform in Ironman and still exists to tell a story. And those stories are powerful, you know. The stories, I feel like for me, one of one of my mantras is that we have to fill the void left by assumption with story. <laughs> and thank you for telling story and storytellers are storytellers in the history of civilization you know every great book came from a story and those great books you know were in greece i mean they're they're still there and they still exist and you know not all stories are tragedies and and not all disabilities are sadness do you see what i'm saying there's there's a sadness but there there's there's triumph and that's a great story. You know, that's a great story. There's sadness, but there's triumph. Yeah. Well, it's you talk about it that that it was a second chance. Uh, for me, it was it was a second chance. I felt like going into skiing for me, it was unfair to a certain extent because I'd been a, a ski racer for 15 years. I was starting over, but I knew what I was supposed to do. And yeah. and that gave me an advantage. You know, which is which is something that that it cuts both ways too, right? Because I was a little bit higher level injury. I'd broken a higher vertebrae than a lot of pe- the people against whom I was I was competing. But to be able to say no, it's about skiing. It's not about the disability. Was was my objective? Like that was that was my way of of winning. Was somebody walks up and sits in a mono ski, and I and and if I could beat them, then I went okay this is about skiing. It's not about the disability. We're changing the conversation. Your, your nickname is a bit raw. Is that, in, that's, that's intentionally so I would imagine. How, yeah. how did that come about? What, and what is your nickname? It, it stuck. It stuck. Um, I started realizing uh, at a younger age that you, you have two ways to perceive is one of pity or one of power, you know, and, and I didn't mind. I didn't, I wanted you to know who I was 
and I didn't want to hide from, remember I told you earlier, I trained at night. It was almost like, this is who I am. It was almost like it was a coming out. I, it took me a while to come out as a disabled person and not just an adaptive athlete, just as a person. And yeah. probably a lot of, uh, and I'm not saying this in a bad way, but a lot of politically correct people probably would dislike how I came out, but I came out bold and bold to me was one arm Willie, you know, and now there's, you know, peg like Meg and you can go all the way through a lot of people, but it was like, hey man, I own it. I'm proud of it. I'm strong. I'm with you and I'm not denying it. I'm saying that that was my strength. And it was uh, Riley at Ironman, you know, he, uh, he's the one that sealed it. So I think it was in 2000, 2001, I come across and he goes, he goes, one arm Willie, you are an Iron Man. And I said, thank you, brother. And, and, and I remember Bob Babbitt, who's one of the creators of CF, he said, you know, Iron Man makes you change the way you think and once you finish Iron Man. And uh, it gave me a lot of more power to think like that. And then when going back on the equipment stuff, uh, you know, I couldn't have continued at the highest level of multiple sports without that. And like that arm that I ended up getting, cause I finished Ironman and a guy came up to me and he says, Willie, why don't you come and do Xterra? And I'm like, well, I need an arm. Hold on, describe what Xterra is first. So Xterra is a uh, open water swim, usually in big surf out in the ocean, you know, pretty dangerous. Like in the world championship, I think in one year there was 12 dislocated shoulders at the start. Yeah, that's how big the surf is sometimes. Wow. And uh, and then there's just injuries all over the place. So it's hard. It's really off-road and uh, off-road bike through lava fields and stuff like that. And then runs up the sides of mountains. And, you know, they happen in uh, Ogden, Utah, up at uh, Sardine Peak, you know, up at uh, Bear Basin. Mm -hmm. Snow Basin. Snow Basin. Not California, Utah. But, and uh, they're hard. You know, they're really hard and they're grueling. And... Uh, he said, I said, well, I need a mountain bike and I need an arm. And he walked over and he gave me a mountain bike. He, uh, Tom Kiley was that owned Xterra at the time he created Xterra. And I went and got an arm. And, but that arm cost almost $25,000. But I, you know, think about that. But it opened up, it was like another born again moment. And then I took that arm and I did. So I-, well, I Describe the arm. What, what, I, so what, what happens with these, this arm? Why do you need the arm? I mean, well, because if you're going down a, a cliff, you got to be able to you got to be able to push push your hips back, and you can still do it, but you'd have to run. But if you want to be competitive, you've got to be able to go down the hills as fast as everyone else. And I was going down the hills. I could ride with one hand, but I wasn't competitive. You know, there's a big difference. And remember, I'm in a field where there is no field. There's no PC division, and there's no physical challenge division. There's just like there's will. And so I, and I wanted to do well. And so, and I could out, I could run and bike with fairly decent with anyone. I couldn't swim that fast. There's, you know, having one hand does slow you down swimming. But I got out there on the world championships Xterra, you know, then went into world championships of duathlon. Xterra is run, bike, swim, it's an off-road triathlon. And then I went into like uh, Leadville 100. Uh, mountain bike races. And remember at this point, I'm an Ironman. I'm also Xterra, duathlon world champion, all these kind of state things. And I get to Leadville 100, which people at that time considered one of the hardest mountain bike races in the world. And uh, 
I well, walk describe up what, describe Leadville. So, I mean, you're starting at what? 13,000, 10,400 10, goes up to about, I think it goes up to about 13,000 and the run goes to 13.1 and I've done the bike and the run. And so I go on there. Mile bike and run. I mean, yeah. they're, they're independent, but we'll get to the lead yeah, that's different as well. But this is important because this is important. This is, goes back, Chris, to when we talked about rugby and how I felt. And I felt now that I've been successful in these other sports, as well as rugby, as well as skiing, uh, Paralympic medal, whatever, you know, but I mean, it was good. I made the Paralympic team, blah, blah, blah. I go into the door at Leadville, 1,000 people are in the race. It's a pretty difficult race. It starts at 10,000 feet, goes up over multiple plat passes at 12 plus thousand feet. And I'm living in Southern California at the time. So it's not like I'm chaining, training away up there. And uh, a friend of mine, his name is uh, Jim McGuire, Jamie. And uh, he says, Willie, can you come over and be on our team? And I finished the race. But before the race starts, you have to go in through a little door in a gym and they check your wrist, make sure your heart rate, your, you know, they do the health check back in the day to make sure you're physically fit enough to do this race. I just finished Ironman and did pretty good. I was pretty fast. And uh, I just finished Xterra World Champion, did pretty good, pretty fast. I just did a hundred mile running race, did pretty good, pretty fast. But I walk in the door over in Leadville thinking that these guys are like, hey, Willie's here. You know, this would be good for us to, you know, have this guy with a disability, give it a go. And guy puts his hand on the door and goes, where do you think you're going? And I go, I'm going to go get my number. And he goes, you got one on. He goes, you're going to hurt yourself and hurt someone else. This isn't for you. Don't even think about it. Stops me. Doesn't let me in the gym. And that, this, that was like another aha moment. It's like, you can never quit. Because if you quit, he can never see me. So I got really upset and I was going to go home because I go, maybe I shouldn't be doing this because he was basically what my father did to me. You know, right. Basically, I shouldn't be doing this. And I went around, I was kind of emotional and, and no one knew this. And I went around to a guy that was helping me out and he goes, what's going on? I go, I can't do the race. He goes, just put a jacket over your arm, put a backpack on, you go back over there. Put a hat on, jacket on, hoodie on, went back over. I started. Rosa Parks in the back of the bus. I don't, I did my one race in the back of the bus and I never got in the back of the bus again. I was in last place when I started that race. 400 and some people did not finish that race. I finished it in the time and then I did it nine more times in a row to prove a point. And, but that, that, that's the deal, Chris, is like, if you aren't out in the game and you can't get the equipment to get in the game, get that arm on, get that bike. I could have never proved that point. To this day now, who knows how many people with disabilities done Leadville 100. Run and bike and the 50, the 10K, the all the races at Leadville. They are all hard. There's no easy race at Leadville, but there's tons of people with disabilities go out there and slay it way better than me now, which I love. And I know, I know that a hand cycle will do it soon. It's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time, but there's guys out there that can do it, you know, and you know how it is, but they need that equipment and giving that equipment gives opportunity to change the way people think. And I, I'll never forget the eyeballs in that guy's face. And I almost see that guy almost every day of my life. I still see that guy putting his hand across that door 
I'm like, where do you think you're going? And, and I wish I had that arm on so I could have shoved it up his ass, but that's how I felt at that moment. And I wish I could go see him again. <laughs> that's how I feel. When you're doing these races, because these races are all difficult. I mean, you're talking about Ironman, you're talking about Xterra, you're talking about Leadville, you did the Lead Man, which is all of them, right? A hundred mile run, a hundred mile bike, the 10K, the 50 mile mountain bike ride. And then <laughs> the there's marathon. one more, I think, right? The marathon. And the marathon. Yeah, exactly. The marathon, which the marathon just seems like you're just throwing the marathon in just for fun after, after well, all those other things. I'm sure that that's not the case. What do you, because, because I mean, you've got to get to that point. I mean, part of these races, doing these races, yes, there will be somebody who wins these races, mm -hmm. but these races, you're doing it for the experience. You're doing it for the personal sense of gratification of training, preparing, getting to the finish line. But if it's going to be worthwhile, you will reach that moment of, I'm going to die here. Like, I just need to stop. I just need to quit. What is it that you say? What's your story that keeps you going? You know, this is, this is, this is like the lead man, which I think is a really, I think is a good point to prove. It was a point. And it's a lead man and lead woman as well. Right. Right. And I, I always felt that I couldn't do them back to back. You know, I felt like, oh, that's just too much to do back to back. Because I've done multiple 100-mile races and multiple 100-mile bikes. I like, that would be too hard. And I found myself being hypocritical. So, you know, I was denying my ability. Or I was saying that I don't think I could do it. I had a hip surgery, got my hip fixed. I was getting older. I have kids. And I'm married. Those are hard. Like, the kids married, that's really hard. And I got the opportunity to do lead man. I felt I could pull it off. And I said, I should do it. And I got a feeling there'll be lots of people that actually crush lead man, which there has been. Uh, Dave Mackey is a great athlete. Uh, Lucas Owen, Owen, a great athlete. And they, they're lead men, different disabilities and stuff. And Lucas is, uh, you know, he's an untrained jewel. He's, uh, he's got like a brachial plexus injury through birth on his arm. So he's a true one arm athlete. But I, I felt like for me, it was harder because of I'm, my family. And then when I get into those things, uh, I felt honored that my wife carved out enough time that I could go train for that and, and get from Idaho down to Colorado and back to Idaho with the kids, get them on their first day of school, go back down to Colorado. You know, the whole thing, the logistics of all that is is like as as any athlete finishes a big anything when you're when you have other people that you're concerned about it's relief for the family but i had the opportunity my wife gave me that opportunity and then cuz i had that opportunity i felt honored to have that and that that was uh, always in my mind you know my children were in my mind and I, I doubted myself all the way up to the 29th hour something minutes of the finish of the run. And I was doubtful multiple times. You know, I felt, you know, how many times you crash and how many times you're hurt and how many injuries you have over the summer doing all that. I mean, I was all broken up before I even got to the start of the run. 
And then here you are, you just say, just keep, you know, keep in mind, you have 20, you have 30 hours to get across that finish line. 30 hours to run 100 miles. Yeah. And there's a huge dropout rate and, you know, and I've already done multiple hundred mile races where there's a 10% finish rate and I have two finishes in, in uh, the Hurt 100, which right. is brutal, but a different brutal. Leadville's totally different from Hurt. Hurt's more up my alley because it's, uh, it's so grindy. Leadville, you actually have to move fast in these wide open spaces. Hurt is your grind, 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 downhill, grind, 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 downhill. Leadville is like, yeah. there's these six, eight mile, 10 mile sections where you're just out on nowhereville and you actually have to be a runner. And I, at this point in my life, I'm just more of a grinder. <laughs> there's nothing fast. There's not one fast twitch muscle in my body anymore. But, you know, I was in my 50s and I'm still there not too long ago, but I finished let that lead man. And I was proud of myself and I, it was great to uh, to challenge myself and, and prove to myself I could do something I didn't believe I could. So that's that's how it was. Is that why you do these kinds of events? Because an ordinary person, you're, you're you're you know, you're talking, you're going, well, yeah, I've done I've done a bunch of hundred mile races and this and that and and sort of dismissing them to a certain extent. Like, oh yeah, yeah, I've done those. Those those are not really I mean they're not that big a deal. Like that one, this one's harder than that one. And but the ordinary person is looking at looking the ordinary person's looking at a marathon going, that's incredible. Like that's absolutely crazy. I <laughs> and to take four of them effectively almost. Yeah, I, it's kind of, this is a funny thing, Chris. So I wasn't a marathoner, although I have some pretty, pretty fast marathon times. I was a ski racer. So I would sometimes go do a marathon. I'd run five miles before the marathon, do a marathon as my over distance training, run my marathon, and then run back the five miles after the marathon back to where I started my run from. And, and I remember I would come in, like there'd be 30,000 people. I'd come in like 15th and I go, wow, I sucked. I was 15th. I didn't know that that was good. I didn't know what a good marathon time was. Someone had to tell me that, no, that's really good. I didn't know what pace was for a marathon. But and you've gone, what, you've gone like 240 or something like yeah, that? I have yeah. a couple 240s and, um, it, but yeah, I'm right on the, I'm right on the limit there, but they weren't marathon running. That was training for ski racing for, and this is even better for Paralympic ski racing. And for what was I training for in Paralympic ski racing? One little moment of my life, one 5K is all I wanted to do well at. That was it. That was it. So I got, you know, I could run. I mean, I'd run a 10K. I ran a 33 off the bike in Hawaii, 33.50 in Hawaii, which is good. You know, it's a no, good- it's legit. Yeah, you know, but I didn't think that I was training for skiing, you know, I was an okay triathlete. I didn't, I never thought I was any good at anything. And then people would go, oh, that's really good. I'm like, oh, but I mean, I still think it, but I know what really good, like I know Chris Waddell is a really good skier and I know Willie Stewart's an okay skier. I'm not Chris Waddell because I know what a really good skier is and I know what a really good runner is, but I'm a heck of a, tra I was, at the end of the day, I was a heck of a trail runner but I wasn't trail running because I was a trail runner. I was training for a different sport. And then I, I mostly trained at the beginning of my life, endurance. And the reason I started skiing was because I was getting such a big butt playing uh, alpine skiing and I wanted to play rugby. So I would use Nordic skiing to being fit for rugby. It wasn't to be, I was always using something to train for something else. 
And I, I think it's because I'm not that smart. That's all. That is interesting. But you went through these transformations too. I mean, you were, you were De Niro and Raging Bull kind of thing, right? I mean, you went from you went from 210 as a as a rugby player down to down to 145 as a as a cross country skier, right? No, I I ski raced at 160, 160. You know, and it's kind of really weird your body fat and to know these stupid things. But 160, 161, 163, and I could only race at that weight for maybe a five week window a year at the most, at the most. So you're talking a five week window, you would train year round for four years, for five weeks of your life to knock out some good World Cup races, and then to go into the Paralympics to be able to uncork one race. And for me, like I wasn't one of the good skiers. I was good, I was good engine, but I had skill set of a Neanderthal. I was, I was, so, but I knew that in, in uh, Salt Lake, I knew I had uh, on that 5K course in the 20K, I knew I'd have a good race. I think in the 20K, I finished like fifth or sixth, which I was really proud of. People are like, you're fifth or sixth. I go, I was proud of that. You know, it's 20K race in the Paralympics. I had, I was probably my best, best, one of my best results. I did okay in Lillehammer. I did okay in Nagano, but I did the one 5K on the relay team. And that was, that was my best finish moment, but wasn't my best skiing. So. But that was where you meddled though, right? Yeah, I meddled. And, then, and the only reason I meddled was because everybody else quit. <laughs> they, remember, it snowed, remember down there, it was snowing so much, a couple of the races. It snowed so much that no one could even get, a, you know, hardly anyone could get around the course. And I, I had a nice line. I had the right skis, got around the course. And, you know, and I had wheels. I had wheels. I could move my feet fast, but I wasn't the greatest skier. You didn't have the right. greatest technique and, and cross-country skiing is about technique. Yeah, it's like swimming. You know, if you want to swim like this, you're not going to be very fast. But if you've got the technique. So I was working on my craft and my craft was going to be Nordic skiing at that part of my life. Even though I was doing Ironman, I was using Ironman purely for Nordic skiing. I was using Xterra for Nordic. I was using all the volume of training purely for that one moment in uh, Salt Lake. And you got that moment and that's the way the games are, right? Is that it's a lifetime of work and sacrifice for the hope of a moment of brilliance. Yeah. And, 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 really you know, and I think the best thing with, with me, if I went on the, the team, like the team, the team carried me in that moment because I felt I had the burden of my brothers on that team, you know, to do well. And I happened to be with two really good athletes that, were accomplished guys and I was the weakest link I think on that team for sure but because of the conditions that lined up well for me for that moment so that moment happened purely because it snowed two feet that day the snow the snow was soft the outside the trails was rough uh the other countries you know the Finns the Swedes the Norwegians all struggled you know the Russians were gone and I'm sitting there looking over my shoulder and I go, gee, we could probably get a medal here. And we almost won the gold, you know? And that, and that was like, and probably the reason we didn't win the gold because I wasn't that fast, but I was fast that day for one moment of my ski career. And Chris, this is so opposite of you. I ski raced pretty big for 10 years. I think I got on the podium three times. One in a biathlon, one in a World Cup in France, and one at the Paralympics in Utah. So... In some ways, you were like you were like in horse race, and they call you a mutter, right? So it's like <laughs> the bad conditions, like you're you're a mutter. Yeah, I was a mutter. But you probably, funny enough, you probably were also 
better at the thing you were doing as your off-season training than you were at, at your primary sport. Is that fair to say? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, way better. Yeah, I mean, I did. I mean, I won the ITU World Championship in triathlon. I won the duathlon World Championship, too, and Xterra, and Hawaiian's first disabled person in his life. But I never won Jack in skiing, and yet I put all my time into skiing. So, I mean, go figure. That's low self-esteem. <laughs> well, I mean, if some of it's more just perspective. You might have needed to step back a little bit and go, hold on. If I put my energy into this one, maybe I could be better than, but, you know, we don't, we don't always make those decisions the way that we're supposed to make the decisions. It sounds like a lot of what you've been talking about, too, is the idea of being, of being a mentor. I mean, you're, you're in a position where you have a responsibility to represent the community, to represent, to, to really shatter some barriers, to, to get into Leadville, to sneak your way into Leadville and then do it another nine times. Mm-hmm. But what, what, what is the idea behind the mentor part? And did you have, do you have a mentor that you look at that you're kind of trying to, trying to emulate when you're helping other people? You know, anger is powerful. <laughs> and I, a lot of that did come from anger, but, you know, there's a, a she runs CAF Idaho, Jen Skusick, and I said, we have a leadership role. And she said to me, which was really a powerful thing. She said, I think we have a responsibility role. You know, there's a, and, and I, that clicked with me when she said that. And I always look back on a lot of the stuff I'll do and continue to do some stupid things. And I have, and I will continue. <laughs> I feel that we have a responsibility. So like you, I hope feel the same. And I, I feel that about you. And there's a lot of our brothers and sisters we ski with that, that actually put their arms around the whole picture and, and pool that with them. And then that pooling with them People think, you know, Willie did this or that. The power comes with pulling those people with me, wrapping my arms around and say, come on with me. And then as I stumble, you can drag me and I'll keep going. But my goal is to pull them with me and then dust to dust, ashes to ashes, but you carry on. And, and then in the Phoenix, another rise again, there'll be plenty of Chris's and Willie's even better than us. Oh, yeah. And the goal The goal is to set that foundation and build it strong, you know, build it strong where it only gets stronger over the years. And I believe, you know, I believe, and this is, this is, I believe CAF was that, is that little piece that was one of the most important pieces of my transformation because I had an organization behind me to believe in me. But I believe then that the social aspects of community and our adaptive athletes, but our people with disabilities will have a better place in the workplace, a better place in the, in the family, a better place in society and recreation and spirituality and physical fitness and intellectual and schools and access. So we are creating this big, strong foundation that we, we know with those people that we pulled with us will carry that torch well. And when they carry it well, they got to keep fighting because you, you know, you can never take a step back. And, and the best thing about our, our minority 
is we don't discriminate. Everybody's allowed in our club, old, young, doesn't matter what color you are, doesn't matter what race you are, doesn't matter what country you came from. We are a representative of all society and we're a tiny little piece in every single family because there's no family that doesn't experience a little bit of what we are. And sooner or later, we all get to be old. <laughs> yeah, we all get to be old, but, but you probably see this as well. I mean, you started this with the idea of conquering the fear, trying to conquer the fear every day. And the fear can be the most debilitating part. And it might not be something that's gigantic, right? I mean, it might be this little, it might be the fear of embarrassment. Like, what do you, I, I have a friend who's, a, uh, who's an acting teacher. And one of the things that he does is he brings them to karaoke night and, and they have to get up and sing. And, and at the end, he basically says, well, it didn't kill you, right? Like you're, you're okay, you're, you're going to be fine. That was a difficult moment, but you're going to be fine. And, and, and I think that, that that's some of what we have to look at too, right? Is that the most debilitating part can, is often right between our ears. It's not some sort of a physical issue. It's, it's our perception of ourselves. It's our worry about what we might do to what we think about ourselves or whatever it is, you know? And so, so I think that it's funny because like just watching like the Challenge Athletes Foundation going to the, going to the triathlon. I mean, you have a lot of the, the disabled athletes, the adaptive athletes, but then you also have a lot of able-bodied people there. And these people come back year after year after year and they're supporting the foundation and they're doing a good thing. But I would imagine there's a whole lot more for them than supporting a good cause. Yeah, and I, I you know, that between the years thing, and I have, uh, I have self-doubt almost every day, yeah. uh, every day. And- Which makes you, know, you normal, I, yeah. yeah and, and then, you know, CAF, I mean, I, I don't, I don't even know if CF knows how important this was, but I remember in Kona, you know, you go out, you go out into the, into the bay and you're, you know, you're surrounded by world-class athletes. And I remember in Kona and I remember swimming out and I had this self-doubt, like, can I do this? And I'm swimming out. And I sold my, I told myself, this is before they separated the pros. It was one mass start. You self-seat. So this is the Ironman start, right? The, and how many Iron people Man, are there? There's, I think there's 1,200, you know, and it's 1,200 the best. And I remember I was sitting in the back, in the back of Ironman, and I go, I'm not going to stay back here because if I can get up in the front behind the pros, I can get into their vortex and shave two minutes, you know, shave two minutes. You can drop. Because yeah. there is a vortex that creates with those really good swimmers. And then I need to come back around, get on the draft, follow the feet. And, you know, it took me a few seconds to realize that, you know, I, in my mind, I was like, I don't belong here. And then I go, I belong here as much as anyone else. But what was the best part about it was I'm with everybody. And, and that's what I did like about Nordic skiing. We raced the US nationals and we qualified for the Paralympic team. I was with the best skiers in the country, you know. I was coming, getting my ass handed to me, race after race. Even though I was doing okay, I had my coaches look at me like I was just a, you know, you suck. I go, I do suck compared to these guys, but I'm better than most. 
And it's, I do suck compared to these Ironman world champion pros, but I'm better than many of them too. And it's like, I, no matter what I do, I'm going to suck, but I'm right here and I'm going to do my GD best to kick as many asses as I possibly can. And so, and I can't kick ass until I get into the vortex, the vortex of the wake of the start. End of story. So here I am, deal with it. You're getting into the race because you were embarrassing another family. This was, this was, <laughs> right? I embarrassed the family. I embarrassed my brothers and sisters, my aunts and uncles. And you know what I did? I got up to embarrass them again. And then now and then, Chris, now and then more for me than you, now and then we kick ass. Now and then everything goes just right. But most of the time, and I have to explain this to my children, most of the time, like I did some ski races recently and I was horrible. But most of the time I'm horrible. But now and then when I tow that line, I can get a result that everyone's going to go, geez, how did he do that? So yeah, I lose. Mostly I lose, but I'm in a lot of sports and I have a lot of opportunities to win just by getting out there, but there's no one winning anything sitting on a couch or hiding in the basement. Drop the mic. <laughs> exactly. 10 year old and 13 year old sons, right? Is this I mean, daughter. daughter? Oh, you have a daughter. Okay. So, so which is which? Sosi is the 13 S O S I E. Sosi Fiona Stewart is 13 and she's a gymnast and impressive i mean i think she's phenomenal but i'm dad but also it's just i love i love how tough she is and breck is the skier in b-r-e-c-k breck mm -hmm. is a skier that Fun. i and he's named after breck Lindsay and i my wife we met in breckenridge at beaver run at ladies night and here we are 35 years later 30 something years later so that's awesome. ladies night that's why i suggest everyone that is looking for a strong uh, durable, <laughs> durable spouse. Go to Ladies Night at Beaver Run, and Breck is named after Breckenridge because that's where we met. And then I told Kirk Bauer, who is my, who is the head of Disabled Sports USA for forty some years, and who is one of my mentors too. I he retired two years ago, and I was at the Hall of Fame dinner there at Beaver Run, and I'm giving a speech, and I said, Kirk, because of you, because he brought me to Breckenridge, because of you. I have a baby named Breck and it was, uh, and he's like, thanks, Willie. <laughs> but it's cause of him. He was someone that believed in me. Kurt gave me an opportunity. He's the one that got me the job at the BOEC as an intern. And he oh, said, it's up to you to make it. And Kirk Bauer, like I told you, he was the Vietnam vet. He was hurt and blown up in 1968. Most of his company was killed and he was put on a uh, helicopter evacuated after three days laying in the Mekong Delta laying there, rats eating his wound with his friends dead next to him. They put him on the helicopter and uh, the, when the light came up and he, before the light even came, the helicopter came, this is three days of fighting in the wet, uh, no one left. He can hear the voices coming in. He said, he said, Lord, if I get out of this spot, I will commit my life to helping others. And then he retired two years ago and he said, Lord, I hope you know I kept my promise. And I just, I thought that was a, one of the most powerful moments of my, my uh, adaptive career was that guy that kept his promise. And uh, I was, I'm grateful that Kurt Bauer, I got to meet him when I was at 
teenage, not teenager, but a young man. I was playing rugby. I probably had a black guy. I was a bike messenger in Washington, D.C. And I didn't have a lot going for me. And he believed in me. And he got me an internship at the Breckenridge Outdoor Education Center. And here we are 40 years later. Wow. And you ended up running it at one point, didn't you? I always ran the adaptive side of it. And I, and I loved the adaptive ski part. And I worked and volunteered for, I've worked for the program and volunteered for the program year round. Because I, I, I think being a volunteer is, uh, was as, is probably as powerful as working. You know, knowing that I was giving of myself to improve others. And I, I got a lot of uh, riches out of that volunteer time. Well, and that answers the question on the mentor side, right? That you hope to stand on the shoulders of giants, right? And obviously you're not seeing yourself as a giant, but but in looking at a guy like Kirk Bauer, looking at a guy like Jack Benedict, looking at these people who created something out of nothing that benefited so many other people and created a momentum moving forward that could, you know, that could change lives that could that could affect the direction of the whole population is 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 exactly what we're hoping for, right? Kurt, gave, you know, he called, he gave me an opportunity, an opportunity. He didn't babysit me. He just said, hey, call this number, see if they'll give you a shot. He, and, and in Kurt, he held up a pen and he pulled out of his pocket. He grabbed the pen from George Herbert Walker Bush handed the pen after he signed the ADA act into law and he gave the pen to Kirk Bauer. Oh, and that was, I mean, if that's, if that's a shoulder of a giant, you know, you know, he's uh, he, he never tells the story either, but boy, I, I, I liked him and I, and he walked around on that peg shovel leg of his. And I just liked the way that he uh, carried himself and he was confident and proud and he was an American hero, but he, boy, he gave his heart back to uh, organizations that basically is why we're here, you and I. What do you, what do you tell your children? So, so your daughter's 13, your son is, is 10. What do you tell, because we've gone through your story. What's the story that you tell them or what do you feel that you have, that you've learned that can impact their lives or help their lives be, more fulfilling. Yeah, I go, boy, that's a that's a loaded one. You know, <laughs> well, I think, you know, I think as a kid, I can't, I think for children, I like them to see my actions. Mm -hmm. I kind of want to show the action of, and then I explain the action of why and who certain people are and how they're better than me. You know, these kids are courageous and they, and they, they see, you know, they start seeing things I see or from my point of view. And most of the, you know, they come to a lot of events. Like we run tons of clinics here and stuff. They see and meet extraordinary people. And they're, I think they kind of teach me more than I teach them because they're, they're in our world, dude, but at a, such a younger age. And so they have a, such a wider and bigger perspective and an open mind. And I think what I want to teach my children is to have an open mind to the possibilities of everything for everyone, you know, given the access opportunity. Including themselves though too, right? Yeah. And, and then they also see, I mean, they've seen me on the side in a gutter and they've seen me get up, you know, they've seen me struggle and it rolls off their back. 
but I think both of them are both of them are strong-minded kids. Both of them have a good sense of self. Both of them are confident, but neither one of them are arrogant by any means. And both of them choose things that they weren't, you know, in the physical world, things that they weren't the best at. They're good at other things. You know, Sosie was this incredible little triathlete and swimmer, but she went to gymnastics. You know, and I'll tell you what, who is not a good gymnast? <laughs> you know, so, I mean, they're good kids. And, you know, and I'm a dad, so, you know, I'm their dad and I, it changed my life. The day Sosie was born was probably one of the uh, most stressful days of my whole life. You know, I was like, I really felt this huge sense, huge sense of responsibility that I still carry now. I mean, I went from being a little starting to mellow out a little to back to intense, you know, you know, and then she's, she's going to be 14 years old. So the intensity is going to change again. If Are you, you know what I mean, oof, go ahead. You know, I just said, if you know what I mean, it's like, boy, you know, when some, <laughs> I feel sorry for the kid that comes over, but you know, I just hope to God she doesn't marry someone like her dad. <laughs> Why would you hope that? Because uh, I was a nightmare, dude. I, it, it, thank goodness that I lost my arm. Thank goodness. Because I tell you what, that really changed my life in a good way. And it's hard to explain to people, like, the best thing that happened to me was this thing getting chopped off. But a lot of people don't, you know, probably like, how can that be? I go, believe me, it was a good thing. And if you knew Two-Armed Willie, you would see why. Are you held to a higher standard now by being a dad? I mean, you, you talk about the responsibility. You talk about being out there, being, being able to demonstrate. Are you held to a higher responsibility of, like, who oh, yeah. you want to be? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I, you know, dude, I'm, I'm kind of a troublemaker in general, but now that I have kids that are old enough to see my behaviors and all that, it's like you said, you know, it, you know, I like to have my beers. I was a beer drinking fool for years, but you know, now it's like, Hey dude, you know, what's are your, your, my actions say a lot. And so if I'm up here, if I'm the guy going back down to the basement to have a Colby, that's not happening, you know, that's just can't. I love it and I love getting away, but I like, hey, you know, I have, and I come from an Irish Catholic family, big Irish family, and if you can only imagine, you can imagine their family. Oh yeah, I mean, no, most I know, know, everybody knows what goes on. <laughs> and I say this without saying it, I don't want my children to be around that, you know, uh, and it was much more acceptable in a different generation. I want this generation to, uh, to take care of themselves, be healthy in all their life choices and be positive and treat people with respect, dignity. You know, there's all kinds of stuff. And, and sometimes certain behaviors of a parent will be picked up quickly by a child. So I had no choice but to change my behavior, especially now with their, I mean, they're, Breck is, like I said, Breck just turned 11 this month and so she'll be 14 in August. Those are little sponges. They and are. Thank, and thank goodness I married a great woman. <laughs> so you, you said you weren't very smart. You are smart. That's the smartest yeah. move you've made, right? Yeah, that was, you know, this is a funny thing. So, you know, this is just a side psychological thing because we're all this psychological, physical, social, spiritual thing, you know, and, and my psychological being, my uh, mental, emotional is I, I went to a marriage counselor, you know, when I first got married because I was, 
I was happy as heck, but I could tell that she was not, <laughs> you know, my wife, Lindsay. And the guy goes, the counselor says like, in the thing, he goes, okay, okay, I get you. You're this, you're all kinds of messed up. You're dysfunctional in all these ways. And then he looks over to her, she goes, she, he says, do you have everything in the world going for you? You're smart, you're pretty, you're this, you're that, great education. Why did you marry him? <laughs> you know? That was that was it. Why? And she was, I don't know. And here we are. You know, I think we're in our 26th year of marriage. So, so you didn't pay that guy, I assume. That counselor. <laughs> His name was Cliff, Dr. Cliff. That was funny stuff. Well, let's let's get you out on on the fear thing. We started with the idea of trying to conquer fear every day. How do you how do you frame that for your children? Yeah, I you know, and Chris, this like I said, it's an everyday thing. So, and I'm not kidding you when I say this. And some nights I don't sleep because I felt like I did something uh, like in a presentation and you do this stuff or, yeah. or I, I said the wrong word. I put my foot in my mouth and I'm always, a, I'm always, uh, I'm always worried that fear and failure kind of work hand in hand and to get back up and go do another presentation after you just bombed one. And it's hard. And, and I don't know how you, but I mean, I have, say I do a hundred presentations a year, there's 10% of those that suck. I mean, they really do it because something wasn't right or something went wrong or someone gave you a bad vibe. And, and it can be just one little thing. I mean, that's the thing that'll, that'll catch me. It's like, Oh, why did I say that one thing? And everything else could be fine. And, and sometimes nobody else even knows what's going on. Right. Right. But it's, but it's there, it's boring a hole into your brain. And we're, we come from a performance background, high performance, a lot of stress and stuff like that. And there is stress with performance. And I learned to laugh off my bad performances, but sometimes they stick. And I'm like, why did I make that blunder? And I get so upset with myself that I can't sleep. You know, I'm like, you can't be doing that. You gotta, and, but I talked to my daughter who's a gymnast and gymnastics is all about failure. No one's, you know, there's people who get tens, but if you get a nine nine, that's a failure. A nine eight, nine seven. And she gets a nine two, and she's like, I, I fell off the beam. And I'm like, I go, it's got you know. I have to let her know that that's part of being better is falling off the beam or twisting or banging your foot on a bar. And and if I, this is just this is the hypocritical part, which I I being being a hypocrite is really really stings me because right. I'm a. I am a hypocrite, you know, but if I do that, then I lose my credibility. So this is a really hard thing to do because you, we, we all have to make livings and we make livings in our own weird ways. And I have to bring home a certain amount of paycheck, but I also have to be willing to be fired. You know, I have to be willing to not hold back. Even that sometimes that once I know I say that I'm gone but I'm gonna say it and know that I bite my lip, but only so long. It's very hard to keep biting your lip till it bleeds. And I know that sometimes when I push too hard, I'm gonna be thrown in the trash can, but I know because I pushed, I can create change. And so from the trash can though, I don't feel good. I actually feel horrible about myself 
But in that time, in that cam, when I'm swimming around, I'm clawing back up to the rim. And I'm clawing back up onto the bike. And I'm not going to hide from what I feel needs to be said. And I'm not going to hide from what I feel needs to be done. And if I did that, then I couldn't live with myself. So in a way, I've, I'm my own worst enemy because I'm going to say it or I'm going to do it and I'm going to get fired. But sometimes that's, and that's why I'm perpetually poor. <laughs> well, there's that part, but you also, you started with talking about your daughter and, and with her sport and, and fear in her sport vis-a-vis your giving beating yourself up over some some presentation so the message that you're giving to your daughter and i'm assuming it's the same message that you're giving to your son does that affect the message that you're giving to yourself do you give yourself a little bit more break in terms of like hey you're going to fail and you got to let go of it because it's not going to help you I mean, so you know the right answer, right? And you're giving them the right answer. You just don't know it for yourself. Have you learned it for yourself? Not as good, not as good, but you know, but I do, Chris, you know, I mean, once you're, once you join our club, basically, you know what true uh, anxiety, sadness, depression, loneliness, I know, I know all of those things, but you know, I know that I have the ability to get out of it. And that's a really hard thing for everyone to do. You know, my, my father doing that, that you got pen in 14 seconds, maybe you should quit thing. You know, that's there. That's there no different than the moment that rope wrapped around my arm and I went up through a fan. You know, I've never, I got it, it's there and it can't go anywhere. But I do have the ability to guide my daughter in a way that gives her strength and confidence from failure. And understanding that's part of growth, but is it easy? No, it's not. And I, and I, dude, I'm, I'm you. I mean, we're all the same people. We all know, we all struggle every day. And in the problem with uh, a lot of people with uh, disabilities and stuff is we, we tend to struggle a little more and have a little more weight on our back. But the fact is we can, we can do better. We always can do better. And I know that some people get so depressed that they don't want to be on this planet. But I think, you know, it'd be better to go hit your head against the wall and go fall down the street running as hard as you can for 100 yards. And then I, I you know, I failed recently and I, I felt like I was inadequate, but I, I went for a ski and then I went for a run and then I went down to the pool and I went for a swim. I thought about it and I took those thoughts. I pulled them out of here and I put them in the trash can and I'm going for it till tomorrow. You know, and even with you, you know, talking to my friend, sometimes, uh, you know, I, I sit around with a lot of people like you, you're fantastic and everything. And you and I have been friends for a long time, but you know, we're great, but we're not great. You know, we're good and we're not good. But you know, should I throw, should you throw Willie in the trash can? I hope not. And oh. I would never throw Chris in the trash can. And I've had some of my best friends and my family members hurt my feelings but I would never give up on them. You know, I don't give up on anybody and I hope they don't give up on me, you know? No, no, I, I think, no, I think you, I think you've nailed it. I mean, it's, it's, it's it, the fear, the struggle is, is a daily kind of struggle. And, 
and I, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm asking from personal, personal kind of, uh, for personal reasons, really, because for me, I'm looking at it, trying to figure out how can, how can I be more generous to myself? Sometimes I feel like my, my success has been despite myself, like despite, like it's really easy to, to in some ways adopt the mentality that your father had when you got pinned in 14 seconds. Yeah. And, and, and that's the guy that's stuck in your head going, going, well, why, why, why would you do that? What you, you have, you don't have any value. You're, you're embarrassing people. Why, why would you do that? And that's, that's some, that oftentimes can be the voice in my head. And I'm thinking, that's not a helpful voice for me. I know that if, if you were telling me that that's the voice in your head, I was like, well, get rid of it, get rid of it. It's not going to, it's not going to benefit you. You need to, you need to get better every day and you need to take and go, okay, yeah, I failed. That's it. Why did I fail? And how can I, how can I move forward? How can I be productive in this as opposed to, well, you, you should probably just think of quitting, you know, which really, I mean, especially when that's your life, right? You think it's hard not to take these things personally and go, well, I should think of quitting. So I should think of quitting that, which is really means that I've been a failure in life. And so, so really I should just probably quit in general, right? Is, and, and so for me, I'm looking at it going, how can, how can I be generous? How can, how can I do what I would tell somebody else to do? And, and I was wondering if that's something that comes out of being a parent as well is that you want the best and you know the best for them and you can help them out because you've, you've made all the mistakes, you know, you and I have made all the mistakes. And so we should will. know something more, right? Yeah. And we'll keep making those mistakes. And it's like, if people, I, you know, I'm, I, I am no saint by any means. And if, um, and the more I stick my nose out there, the more likely that I'm going to be making mistakes. Sure. I mean, it's the way it is. And so, and as I get older, the more I toe the line, the more likely I'm going to struggle, but I'm going to keep towing the line and I'm going to keep making mistakes and I'm going to have to keep forgiving myself, you know, and I'm not saying this in a bad way. It's just like, we all make mistakes and anyone who thinks they don't make a mistake, maybe should go find that friend in the mirror, you know, cause you'll see, you'll see flaws in every mirror. Well, if we're not willing to make mistakes, we're not willing to actually try anything new, right? We're not willing to take that risk. Yeah, I only do what I'm good at. And it's like, wait, you know, and the funny thing is when people think they're good at something, they're really not. <laughs> I mean, Simone Biles can say she's good at stuff, you know, but you yeah. only, you know, remember Larry Bird a long time ago, he, you know, he was a trash, he worked on a trash truck mm -hmm. and he, uh, a long time ago, he said this quote in, uh, he said, you know, you're only as smart as where you stand. He goes, I work on a trash truck and I know a lot of executives that couldn't make it through one day on this trash truck. Yeah. And, and, you know, and then, so it's to respect the work that anyone does, you know, and I, I did like that when I was in Japan, I noticed that everybody was respected for what they do and they were given respect rather than, you know, oh, well, I'm the CEO over here, but the trash truck driver is this. No, they were, they treated that trash truck driver no different than that CEO. I thought that was a, you know, by traveling, you learn a lot. 
I love how the Norwegians, when they go to a race, they don't cheer. They cheer for the last place guy as equal as the first place guy. And they, and they corrected us as Americans. We were sitting there watching the race because we were cheering all the Americans and they corrected me. And I think it was, you know, it was like Mark Wellman, Jeff Pagels. And they go, why do you treat cheer for that one, but not that one. They all wear a number. They all showed courage. They put the number on. They went out and they raced and they were in a Nordic race in Norway and Lillehammer. And they go, why are you only cheering that? And I'm like, good point. You know, yeah. anyone who puts that number on and shows courage should be cheered. So that's awesome. That is awesome. Any, any big races, any, any big events that are coming <laughs> yeah. up? Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know if you, I'm, I did a thing, Smoke and Fire, last year, which is pretty cool. It's a 420 mile. Which was awesome. We didn't talk about it at all. We should talk about that. Uh, we can, but that, you know, I, I did, a, I did good in that. And I was with Andre, who's a bilateral amputee and a hand cycle. And I think he went, he probably went 250, 300 miles on, you know, Un, unaccessible you know not accessible trails oh these are walking trails that are side hill roots, no, these are trees. these are these are these are just brutal trails you know it's all through the state of idaho and the wilderness and the salt tooth and that was and i had uh lucas onan and uh uh muhammad lana who were all accomplished athletes but we kind of did it together it ended up lucas i went to about 400 miles lost my brakes we, it was over a five day period. You're sleeping out in the wilderness. You can do whatever you want, but you can, everyone else has to have the same access that you have. So it's pretty tough, very tough. And those guys are doing lowest to highest, which is you know going from the lowest point on every continent to the highest point on every continent together. And I think they, went, they were down in uh, South America. They knocked that part out. And so they brought, came out and joined us here in Idaho because it was COVID. And so we could do a really cool race. Uh, I, you know, it's so hard to explain. It's a, one of those really hard things to explain, but I liked it because it was a challenge me physically, psychologically, you know, it definitely put me in the gutter and I was hurt last year doing it. I crashed my mountain bike, broke my arm in half and six ribs, but still did, did, uh, did the race. And I felt like confident I can do it. So I'll do that again. And, and, but that was the team thing was, was really important with yeah. that, right? The team was really hard because we tried to stay together as much as possible. Uh, we all did. We stayed pretty together. You know, Muhammad dropped out early, then Andre dropped out. And uh, once, once we were, we were within striking distance, but I lost my brakes on a big descent during the nighttime and felt like, you know, I thought I was about to kill myself you know, that's just the part of what I do is I take it to the limit. But I was going to probably, I was pretty dangerous coming down a hill at night, can't see with your light bouncing on these dirt roads and dirt trails and single tracks. And, you know, it gets down in the teens at night and you can be in the 80s during the day, 90s. It was in, you're at, you know, you're at 11,000 11, feet, 10,000 feet. And um, it just, it got to the point where I couldn't keep the bike working. So I rode home and I rode 400 and some miles and the race is 420, but I took, I had to bail out, come the road, but that's not the thing. The point was that the team of it and the team experience and then working together during duress and stress and the ugliness of our 
inner demons comes out after about 24 hours straight of racing is you start seeing character and at 48 hours it's different and then after three four days it's even more different it's amazing i mean it's the only way you can find out who you truly are is through that exhaustion period and it's 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 a it's spiritual I want to do that again. <laughs> so that's going to come. I think I'll do, I'll do Ironman. I would do Alcatraz. I don't you know the triathlon Alcatraz, Ironman up in Coeur d'Alene. Uh, and then there's some trail races and mountain bike races. I'll probably be back in Leadville this year. And I'll do some races up there. And I like racing because I like the community. Just like when we started and I told you about the 5k I did, it's the same brotherhood, sisterhood. It's the same people. And I, you know, and I have a, a lot of love for the people and I feel that people make me feel better about myself. And, and I like a pat on the back once in a while. I, you know, I'm addicted to that. Well, that's, it's funny because I was going to ask about like, is this an addiction? I mean, you just, you just reeled off a lifetime, a career's worth of races for, for a lot of people, which you're talking about doing in this year. Yeah. Yeah. Is there some sort of an addiction? I mean, it's probably relatively healthy. No, I I was saying, Chris, that's what I said. It's just low self-esteem, dude. It's the most powerful thing I have. Yeah. I think I also do it because I do all those races, you know, with CAF, you know, and so it's my way of being a messenger, you know, and I'm, I hope I'm a good messenger. There's days I'm not, but I, you know, there's days I am. And when I compete in sports, that's thousands of people I'm with that see what I'm doing and they and they give me a pat on the back and say, good job. And they start seeing other people. And then one day those people could be me or you, you know, and they, and they know where to turn now, you know, 30 years ago, they didn't have a place to turn. You know, now they do, they have a place to go and they know, and they know a group of people that are pretty positive. Our peeps are pretty positive people to be around. And, and, you know, those people in a roundabout way, my relationship with you and all the other brothers and sisters I've met over the years uh, saved my life, you know, saved me. Because I, I, if I stayed on my trajectory without this, I'm fearful of that. I don't want to go back to that. That is a fear I have. And I never want to be that person again. And you're saving a lot of lives as well. You know, you this saved your life, but doing what you're doing is saving other lives and paying it forward effectively. So Willie, thanks a ton for joining us, for taking the yeah. time out of out of your training. You got to be training like 10, 12 hours a day these days. Is that how it works? <laughs> no, I got, if I can put with kids and stuff, if I have like, if I have a 15 hour week, that's a good week. You know, it's more, it's a social thing for me. And social, I'm a, I'm a social beast. As much as I'm private, I'm also, I love, I love meeting new people and going to new places and, and, and I love uh, the exhilaration of competition. You know, it's fun. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. It's always good to connect and your story totally, totally blows me away. I mean, just, you say you're not fast. I don't believe you. I'm sorry about that. The story I'm going to tell to other people is that he is fast. So I'm sorry. I'm I'm blowing your story out of the water. I apologize. Yeah. You know what? That's funny, Chris. Just you can say it used to be it. I'm good with it. Hey, buddy. <laughs> thank, thank you, Chris. I really appreciate you and keep keep being a messenger, buddy. I'll Stop. keep doing it. And thank you to all of you for listening in to 
Chris Waddell Living It. These are experts in the experience of being human. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe, please like us, please follow us, and we'll continue to bring you some great stories. Willie, thanks a ton. Have a great one. Get out in the pool. Thanks, buddy. Bye-bye, Chris. All right. See ya. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris Waddell Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.